the younger the athlete, the more developmental, I want to build a broad base. Building a broad base of different types of strength is going to set them up for better speed, for more application in different sports, and for better resiliency with it later on. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Ken Vick of Velocity Sports Performance. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to start with a very small apology. I'm sure it seems a little weird to start a show with an apology, but man, I can't remember the last time we missed an episode. And, you know, I have made great strides to try and never miss a week of episodes. But man, I just felt like last week I was just in the deep end and there was no way out between my coaching in the gym, between some projects I was working to finish up, between coaching the kiddos, just all of the spring things that are going on. I just, I couldn't get it done. Didn't get it done. So I want to apologize for that because you know, this is important to me and I take kind of my role in this industry very seriously. I don't take myself seriously, but I take my role seriously and I want to make sure that each and every week you've got something to look forward to, something that's going to be positive and it's something that's going to make you a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. So with that being said, apology on one hand. On the other hand, I want you to know that the podcast in the very short future is going to be lit. As the young kids say, there is going to be a lot of good stuff coming down the pipeline because after last week, one of the hardest issues, quite frankly, has just been trying to get shows booked. I'm working on kind of a narrow window here because my kids are only at school a certain amount of time. So trying to coordinate my schedule with all these other high performer schedules can be difficult. But I decided, hey, look, I'm going to triple down on this thing and I am going to get a ton of shows booked in the very immediate future. So Last week, that was like my sole goal in life was to get as many shows booked as possible. So just looking ahead, we got our guy Ken Vick today. Next week, we've got tall Dave Shock from iFast. He's our morning coach. We talk gin pop training. I think you're going to love it. Zach DeChant, I believe is how you pronounce Zach's last name, but baseball strength and conditioning coach from TCU. Really excited to have him on. Adam Minner works with high-level basketball players, works with speed development. So he's coming on. Mike Camperini, the infamous Mike Camperini, also known as the Camperini deadlift, the Camperini angle. Basically, anything Bill can't come up with a catchy name for, it is a Campo something. Uh, But yeah, he's going to come on. We're going to talk rehab, return to play. Excited to get him on. Tyler Williams from the Los Angeles Rams. David Gray, very sharp rehab guy. I believe he's from Ireland. We've got Bill Miller. He's going to talk med ball training. So, I mean, I've got all that lined up in like the next week and a half. So I think breakneck pace until the end of May, because I know the kids will be out of school and then the schedule to have a, how do I want to say this? And executively produced show (laughs) will go downhill very quickly come end of May, June and July, because you got kids coming in and out. You got the dog. You got a lot of shenanigans going on around our house. So, man, I'm just going to crank and I'm going to try and get as many episodes recorded and ready to go in the upcoming weeks as possible. So very excited about the podcast, other new things going on. As I alluded to, both kids are in sports. Kendall is really blossoming in soccer. It's fun to watch her and some of her other teammates. She's just got some really good rapport with them, plays hard, love the fact she's very aggressive defensively, likes to pressure girls, creates turnovers, and then good little passer. She used to want to take 20 touches and try and dribble all the way down the field. Now she's understanding she's got probably two or three touches and then understand she's got to get rid of the ball. So that's fun to watch. 
Cade playing baseball right now had one game where he just crushed the ball. He just striped it three out of four times. So that was fun. Didn't hit it quite as well the other night, but nobody did. But he did have probably the biggest hit of the game. I mean, he's got an effortless swing. So I know once this guy gets like his timing figured out, he's really going to crush it. He's just ahead of the ball right now. I think he's just really excited to hit. And therefore, he's always ahead of the pitches. But yeah, a couple nights ago in our game, he had a hit where, you know, he hit it all the way into the outfield on the fly. He was pretty jazzed because he crushed the ball. So excited for that. Just love coaching them in sports. I love that new challenge. And it's exactly what it is, you know, working, especially with the girls in soccer, because they're getting more competitive now. It's a very tactical sport. So I'm enjoying that. And I'm learning a lot about myself as a coach. And I think that's part of it, right? It's always continuing to grow and evolve. So that's been fun. And then probably the highlight of last week was Saturday night, Kendall went and hung out at a friend's house, did a sleepover. And so Kate and I did what we just called boys night. So went to dinner, went to the arcade because that hasn't really, that's something we used to do a lot and a lot. I mean, like three or four times a year, but we probably hadn't been in nine months to a year. You know, I don't know if we'd been since the whole Rona thing hit. So we had to go to dinner. We went to the arcade. He loves the arcade. Came home, did a little sportsing, threw the football, got some buckets. I don't know how he pulled this off, but he kicked Jess out of our bed. She slept in his bed. So he got to do a sleepover with me in the bed. We got to watch TV shows and read books and got up the next morning and went to brunch. He came into the gym with me and worked out. So just a lot of fun hanging out with him and just trying to enjoy all those moments, man. You know, I think as a parent, when they're young... It's new and then it's not new, but there's always this point where you try and recognize like, hey, I could complain about this, but in a couple years, I'm going to complain because it's not here anymore. And I think that's something that I'm always conscious of when I find myself starting to complain about, oh, I wish they were ready to do this or I wish they would do that. And I look at them and they're so cute and they're so little still. And then I just think, man, a couple years, they're not going to be like that. You know, we're only a couple years away from having a teenager on our hands. So I'm just trying to take each moment as it goes in all areas of life. And yeah, that's where things are at. So excited about where everything's going. Definitely excited about the podcast and definitely excited about this show with Ken. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So little break and then we're going to jump into this new episode. This episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Momentus. For many years, I simply disregarded the age-old advice of getting liquid protein in either during or after workouts. Part of this was due to the fact that most had so much crap in them, I didn't want to put them in my body, and others might have been high quality, but tasted absolutely disgusting. However, if you're looking for a protein that's not only high quality, but also tastes amazing, you need to check out Momentus. I've been using Momentus for several months now, and I can tell you it's hands down the best tasting protein I've ever had. But it's not just me. I have numerous elite level athletes who are very picky with their protein powders, and every one of them raves about how great Momentus protein shakes taste. And while the taste is amazing, the best part about Momentus is that they're incredibly transparent with what goes into their product. You never have to worry about a tainted or dirty supplement, as all of their products are NSF and Informed Sports Certified. If you'd like to try Momentus out for yourself, head over to livemomentous.com forward slash Robertson and use the code Robertson20 to save 20% off your first order. Or if you want to try before you buy, get a free three-pack sample sent to your house by using the Robertson sample code at checkout. Regardless of which option you choose, I guarantee once you try Momentus Protein Shakes, you'll never go back to anything else. 
Ken Vick is the President and High Performance Director for Velocity Sports Performance. With a background in sports science and coaching, he has over 28 years of experience and has worked with athletes and organizations in 11 Olympic Games from 17 countries across 32 different professional sports. A creative problem solver, Ken leads Velocity's integrated support teams deployed around the globe in support of athletes and organizations pursuing their best performance. He also is a lifelong entrepreneur who helps guide the Velocity Sports Performance business as a leader in the field. In this show, Ken and I talk a ton about both speed and athletic development. While most talk about the KISS principle, we talk about the ITS principle. We discuss why teach, train, and apply is a key tenet of his speed programs. We talk about the differences between first steps and next steps, and why setting expectations with athletes is so important. And last but not least, we talk about the role of gameplay and the scariest game of Duck Duck Goose Ken has ever witnessed. This show was a ton of fun, and I think you're really going to love our discussion. But enough for me, let's do this. Ken, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, myself. I'm a <laughs> father, a husband, a business owner, a coach. I am trying to make the world a better place. I always say for future generations by helping one athlete, one coach, one business. Hopefully we make things a little bit better. I love it, man. I love it. That's, that's <laughs> a great, great mission statement right there, man. So that's talk it. to me. What led you to the world of physical preparation? I love getting people's backstory. So I'd love to hear, like, how did you get into all this? <laughs> Always interesting, right? Like, yes. find out how somebody ended up here. Good athlete in high school, captain of a bunch of teams, played a bunch of different sports, but not a great athlete. Probably pretty common story. I mean, I'm 5'8". I don't know, my high school days, I was probably weighing around 150, 100, yeah, probably 150 pounds or so. Yep. Fast, relatively strong, but you know, not over dominant. Went into college. I quit my first sport, which had been soccer. That was my primary sport. Kind of okay. got burnt out by it. I was playing water polo and definitely far too small to be on a top 10 water polo team in the country. I ended up hurting my knee along the way there. That took me off that path, but I always loved sports, right? Right. I, coached. Even when I was in high school with a buddy, we ended up coaching another youth soccer team. And so coaching, always loved it. Went back, yep. was coaching during college. I was coaching soccer, I was coaching water polo, stuff I loved. And so I didn't know this was a profession. Seriously, I had no idea. I thought maybe you became a doctor and did sports medicine, but I had no idea this was something you did. Right. We didn't have like strength coaches at our high school. We didn't have athletic trainers at our high school. We had nothing. I had no idea. But in high school, I had found this book. I wish to this day I could still find it because I've searched the internet. I have no clue, but I know what it looks like. I can see the color. It was by the strength coach at Notre Dame for the soccer team. And in there, they had lifting. And mm. really shockingly at the time, they had Olympic lifting. And so I started learning myself and trying to buy videos, you know, back on videotape in the day. Right. When those came out and I'm trying to learn this stuff. And so lifting in the basement or the garage with my buddies doing that stuff, it was always part of it. Yeah. And then I fell into it because in college, my undergrad degree is in sound engineering and acoustic design. I'm in a totally different world. I've forgotten that stuff, but I came out to Cali in that world. I'm in California. I came out here to Los Angeles working in that world. My wife got a job in the fitness industry. And when stuff was changing for me in the studio side, and I'm not liking what's going on, I'm not liking this world. I lost a job there. I'm in between, started working in fitness. I'm like, shit, I like this. So I'm going to start doing this. And so I started doing it myself, started training some people, got into coaching weightlifting, became a weightlifting coach. Okay. And then it kind of progressed from there. And yeah, the career has gone a lot of different ways, but I got into it because I always liked 
trying to make the most of myself. Yep. How could I do things to be stronger, faster, smarter, do it better? And the natural side of me that liked engineering and problem solving has always found this really exciting. So I enjoy it. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. But I think you're doing us a disservice when you're just like, yeah, so I became a coach because, you know, your path is pretty unique as well. It's not just like you went from the sound engineer to becoming a coach, like you've literally coached like all over the world. So would you mind filling in some of those gaps in your career for us? For sure. The career path, you know, after getting started, it's been interesting. So sound engineering went into this, became an Olympic weightlifting coach, right? So I'm doing that while I'm training athletes, was passionate about it. And I was fortunate out here in California, there was two really good weightlifting coaches. I was able to go kind of sit in on and pick their brains regularly. It was Mike Bergner down Mm -hmm. south and Bob Takano up north. And if you know weightlifting, you know those names. Yeah. Great coaches. And so that was a big passion of mine. So I'm using that while I'm coaching athletes and I'm progressing more and more coaching athletes got involved with a place that had everything integrated. And I didn't appreciate at the time how amazing it was to work in a place where I had strength coaches standing next to ATC, standing next to Kairos, working with the orthopods. And all these people are having conversations and literally the training tables are, you know, 10 feet away from a lifting platform. Right. I was young. I thought this was, you know, of course you would. That's how, this it, this how it works, right? Of course it is. Everybody does it this way. It's integrated all the time. No. Yeah. So I'm doing that. And I was able to coach some weightlifters from the day they got introduced to their sport up to the world level. I've coached a couple of world level lifters, a couple of U.S. champions and record holders, and kind of a career path note there too, Mike, is that, so as I'm going through this, right, and I'm, I'm a strength coach at this point, I'm coaching Olympic lifting, I believe in power. I mean, trust me, there was no such thing as too strong at that point in my world. Yeah. Didn't exist. <laughs> but athletes got hurt. Yeah. Even if I did the best job I could, they got hurt. And in the setting I was in, we were doing a lot of rehab. So I went back to become an athletic trainer as well. And that just really gave me a much broader perspective of like strength conditioning. And so yep. working at a high school as an athletic trainer and strength coach, great experience for me in my career, made me much better. But I was able to introduce an athlete to some of the Olympic lifting and variations in part of her rehab. Yeah. Now, she was a basketball player. She hurt her back badly in basketball. She had problems, had some other injuries. We taught her weightlifting. She used it for years as she was a player. And as she finished her career in high school, you know, I'd always told her she was kind of good at this, but she's a four foot 11 good athlete, but she wasn't going to go play at a high level in basketball in college. She's like, all right, I'll give it a try. She went on to go to multiple world teams for the U S as a weightlifter. Wow. Um, So that was a really cool thing. Yeah. So I'm into that. Right. And I'm taking the sports medicine side. And as I'm doing this, guess what else do you realize at a point? You realize that athletes need speed. Yep. You know, I came at it from that strength side and then sports medicine. And it's like, nope, I got to get these athletes faster. So at a point I went and became a track coach. I started taking the courses, went, there's a buddy of mine who was a track coach at a local high school and started working with him there. And he had been one of Vern Gambetta's athletes mm-hmm. and was still really close with Vern. So I had a lot of influence from that side. So now I'm just kind of trying to build the toolbox, right? And like I said, I was in an integrated setting that I didn't realize how much that influenced me. And then that continued. So down the years, worked with a lot of different sports. One of the things I've really enjoyed the most is seeing different sports in different countries and cultures. So I've had athletes, and I lose track of these numbers. My marketing people always yell at me. I'm supposed to know them. Um, (laughs) I think it's been like 32 different national, like international and national level sports. I've got to work with athletes. It's like 17 countries, I think, maybe more now. So 
a lot of different experiences and, and I have a big passion for the Olympic sport. So I've had athletes in lots of Olympic games and different sports and getting ready for another one right now. So yeah, I like that part. A lot of different things, a lot of different sports and you get to see and take it all in and try to take the best from each as well. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. And like you alluded to, obviously speed is something that you're passionate about. I know it's something that the Velocity brand is well known for. And one thing that I love at least diving in or starting every show with is getting an idea of every coach's philosophy, right? It's really easy to talk strategies, tactics, but I love to know philosophy first, like who you are as a speed coach. So with that being said, how would you describe like your philosophy or your big rocks when it comes to developing speed? Oh, great question. I would break it up. I think think about this, I, I kind of take it two ways. So there's some big rocks that are universal. And then there's some things that I would kind of separate out if I'm talking about developmental athletes, mm-hmm. where on our consumer side of velocity, what most people probably know us for is our centers. That's going to generally be youth athletes, right? Through yep. youth, through college. Mm-hmm. Then on our elite side and our international side, the high performance world, probably a little different. So what are some things I believe in? First of all, first and foremost, everybody's heard of the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Yep. All right. I always come back to a different one, the it's principle. And this one comes up with our coaches and and for myself as well. And it's, it's the sport stupid. (laughs) We get so enamored and not just enamored. I mean, we're passionate about what we do. We're intellectual about what we do. We love how to prevent an injury and how to rehab and strength and speed and stop. It's the sport. Yeah. Yep. And we've got to keep coming back to that. So that's a reminder for myself more than anybody. Um, (laughs) So Outside of that, though, when it comes to developing speed, big rocks, teach, train, and apply. If we're got, well, let's go bigger rocks, actually develop it. And we can yep. talk more about that and go separate. But yes, every athlete should be working on speed if it's part of their sport. We can go down lots of rabbit holes. But first and foremost, if you're a coach, and, and I was, I was just, hey, just get more powerful and stronger and you'll get faster. True, mostly, but limits. And so yep. if you're a coach who thinks you don't or can't improve speed, I would disagree with that a lot. And we can have a beer and talk about it. So do it. Then when it comes into doing it, teach, train, and apply. Okay. And that was something that evolved at Velocity. Obviously, Lauren Seagrave had an amazing speed methodology, a huge background in linear speed and success. And so we built on that and had to keep you know growing. And one of the biggest areas that I'd say over the last 20 plus years, Velocity's methodology and, and my evolution in speed has been is in the motor control side. And there was a point where some things were very missing that applied side. And from a motor control perspective, from an actual getting retention and application in their setting, you got to have that applied piece. So teaches, we have pieces that are technical drills. We have training drills that are for repetition, for load, for intensity, whatever. And then there's got to be applied pieces. The balance of those three can change, but you got to have them. And then on the... Developmental side, I'd say a big rock is go fast. We're getting more and more research that at certain ages when they're young, just have them go fast. Don't make them mechanical robots in your training. Yeah. So go fast. And the applied side of go fast with young athletes is play games. You have races, chases, tag, do those things, and that's going to work. On the other side, on the elite side, big rocks, don't screw them up. (laughs) You got a fast athlete, don't screw them up. Don't take your version of perfect mechanics. Don't take your version of perfect strength and try to drastically change it. Been there, done it, learned the lessons, stick with it and give them what they need for their sport. Again, come back to the it's rule. So think about what they need for the sport and make sure you're doing that. So those are kind of big rocks we tend to work from. No, I love it, man. And obviously that question was a little bit vague, 
for good reason, because, you know, I want to dive into specifics, but I want to get the overarching first. So if you were to break things down and very simply, let's just talk acceleration and top end speed. How would you go about developing that first step for your average field or court sport athlete that struggles with that piece? And this is such a common thing, right? Whether it is <laughs> whether we're sitting there and I'm getting ready for an NFL draft and a guy's walking in and telling me what he needs. Oh, he needs first step speed, right? Or, yep. or it's a parent and a 12 year old. So all yep. the time, first step. Yep. And the starting point for all those is the same. Let's find out what that means. Start yes. having a conversation. And let me digress here for a second. Let me sure. tell you why this is important when I think about it. Um, the words matter. And I think it's one of the biggest failings in our field. And it's one of the things that creates the biggest gaps between whether it's sports med, sports science, performance, actual sport coaches, the words. And a great example, I learned this early in my career. Uh, we were working with an NBA team. So outside consultants doing work with them. And at one point we had a testing battery. And so during that testing battery, we we're taking them through different performance tests, which included jumps. And in this case, we had typical counter movement jump. We had an approach jump and we had a reactive jump. So we had three different types of jumps. Yep. Well, one of the other things we did at the same time was we took the entire coaching staff and we had them rate the players. And I had done this in a couple of their pro settings and really interesting. Give them general vague things, rate players, speed, athleticism, quickness, jump, and strength. Those were the five we used with this NBA team. Okay. And you go, okay, you look at the data afterwards. And I remember sitting there that night crunching data from the testing. And we thought we screwed up so bad because when we're looking at the data, the ratings of jump, player jump ability by the coaching staff have no, and I'm, I'm talking, there was almost no correlation or relationship to how they did on jump tests. Huh. So we were scared to death. We went back and checked our data. We checked what we entered from the coaches, sheets that they scored stuff on. And it was true. There was weak correlations at best. Right. So we had to go back and do some interviews and talk with coaching staff. And as we did that, it was one of those moments you're getting hit over the head. It was so obvious. When an NBA coach is talking about jumping ability, there's things they already know. And within the people they're talking to, there's subtleties they already know. They don't give a crap about jump height. Everybody can jump high. It's the NBA. Right. What matters is how fast you can do it. What matters is can you do it on the second jump or off balance or under contact? Hmm. And that sounds obvious, but it was still one of those great moments early on that like, how often do we have conversations with a coach or an athlete? They say, oh, he needs more power. He needs to jump better. They need a better first step. We don't even know if we're having the same freaking conversation. Right. So I'm passionate about this one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm I love it. giving away. I love but the it. words matter. And I think it solves so many um, of the problems and the arguments we have. I, I joke and I say I'm kind of a radical centrist. Um, <laughs> fairly stoic. I have, I mean, I have all kinds of extreme beliefs one way or another, whatever, but as a whole, I think the middle is really strong and our profession gets caught up on these little details outside and we don't even know what we're talking about. So <laughs> I, I didn't it. answer your question at all. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> uh, but I'll come back. Let me, yeah. Uh, all right. So somebody needs first step quickness. I'm going to find out what that means. And so we try to teach all of our coaches, you know, keep asking why it's kind of that consultant role and keep asking questions. Great. When do you feel like you need first step quickness? Coach, when do you see the player not have it? Who does have it? When is it showing up? How would you know you got better at it? What would you feel different out on the court? Or feel? And as you go down those paths, you can usually find a couple of things, right? And, yep. and we know a lot of these, but I think it's really important still to do that because that's the start of athlete buying as well. So 
Okay, we got that. So what are we going to do with it? Well, first of all, the other thing we talk about with our young coaches as we're teaching this is, is it really first step or next step? And I think when this was actually posed to me by one of our staff years ago, brought this concept up and it was perfect. First step kind of indicates you're standing still and you go. Then it, it, it happens, right? That's part of plays. It's part of set pieces. But most of sports isn't. Most of sports is really about next step. I'm shuffling, I'm running, I'm backpedaling, I'm doing something and I have to react. So it's not really a first step, it's a next step. And this is where we get into then looking at, because first step, we're pretty much saying acceleration mechanics, right? Get better at it, break that down. Yeah. But if we're looking at a bigger picture, now it's got to have a linking movement. Is it, is it coming off a shuffle? Is it a loading step or what some people call like a drop or a plyo step? Is it a base rotation? Is it what's happening here? Yep. So that might tell us what we need to train. Because if this athlete, you know, how am I going to get better at it? You asked, look, I'm going to break it down and analyze. So we started there asking questions. Then we're going to go into skill versus physical capabilities. If they got awesome power, if they have good acceleration times in five yards and 10 yards, well, that's probably not my problem. I probably need to look at how they're linking. Yep. And we'll We'll entirely set aside here, Mike, the perception, action, game smarts. We can come back to that. Right. But right. That's how am I going to get first step better? I'm going to look at their physical capabilities. I'm going to look at their skills. We got to break down both sides of it and decide where we can get the most return on investment. Yep. And, you know, the physical things we know, they're not that hard to understand. We have biomechanics. We have enough understanding that, hey, but go measure it. Go find out what type of strength they need or what they have and go from there. Yeah. Make some decisions. It's These are basic decision trees and the, the engineering side of me loves that, but it's the art of them doing something with it that gets interesting. Yeah. Well, and you bring up a great point too of asking these questions because there have been numerous times where, well, first off, I'll digress for a second. Like <laughs> 90% of the calls that I take from parents, this is what they want, right? Little Johnny or little Susie is too slow. They've got a great jump shot or they're great on the ball in soccer, but they can't get on the field or the court or whatever because they're not fast enough. So this is such a common theme, but you make up a great point here. Like, okay, let's dive a little deeper and let's set some clear expectations. When you say first step, what do you mean? More specifically, how are we going to know if we've achieved this, right? Because huge, because you make a great point. Like sometimes you test somebody and you look at their 10 and you're like, oh, that's, that's not bad. But then you watch them play in an actual game and it's like the play has already happened and then they react. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like there's like a a lag. There's like a lag or something. So that's such a great point. So I wanted to make sure we touched on that because the expectations and that's true in every point of life, right? Like I know you do a lot of leadership stuff too. Setting expectations up front and being clear on those makes everybody's life that much easier. It is. And it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I know... I've heard you lots of times talk about as you're coaching your kids in soccer and you did the recent podcast where you kind of hit some of that. But it's such a thing when you go out and coach a sport in general. And I think every performance coach, and if you can, if you're a rehab person in sport, man, go coach a sport. Go coach kids, coach track, coach weightlifting, or go coach something. But you see it because once you start coaching and watching that, you know that player is faster. And you can literally see in the little kids, you know, higher level athletes hide it. But in the kids, you can literally see when their brain is still processing the decision making or the perception instead. of. But they're fast. So it's a great place to see that decouple, I guess, is a sense I'd say. Yes. And I think you're absolutely right. Like when you watch people play sports too, one girl in particular stands out that I'm coaching right now because she's a great athlete, but she hasn't played the sport of soccer much. So there's like this moment where 
She waits and then she runs versus the girls that have played soccer their whole lives. They just go. Right. Yeah. So I just keep telling her mom, like, give her time, let her get reps and exposures. She'll be fine. So yeah. on the flip side of that, we got top end speed. And obviously top end speed gets really controversial when it comes to athletes, like how much is enough? And you'll have some coaches that say, oh, you'll never use it in a game. So you don't need to train it. And you have others that feel like their lack of inclusion is like criminal. So I'd love to know your thoughts on developing max speed or velocity with athletes. Mm, yeah. And this is one that always cycles through every couple of years and yes. becomes a bigger topic again, right? Yeah. And, yeah. I know it's been trending lately, but it just keeps coming around. So what do I think? If it's a developing athlete, they all do it. Just do it. And so for me, when I was opening a center where I'm at, so I was opening a training facility and I found out Velocity was going to open another location. I said, oh crap. And this is right at the beginning of Velocity and they are opening places left and right. And oh man. So I ended up meeting the guy that was going to open it and he was a great guy. So that became my first business partner and how I got involved in Velocity. And as that was happening though, I was visiting one farther away to see what they're doing. And I walked in as a coach and I saw volleyball players doing max V work. And I thought it was the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> right. I did. I, I sat there and I talked down. I'm like, why are they doing that? Well, later, probably nine months later, I'm sitting there with Lauren Seagrave and I'm having this conversation. And I was being very narrow in my view. Those athletes were developing their neuromuscular system. They were doing one of the best plyometrics you could possibly do. So for a developing athlete, again, we're building well-rounded athletes yep. and those developmental years do it. Now, at a higher level, I mean, are there some athletes that don't need it? Of course, there's some athletes that don't need it, but not a lot. I mean, if you're a running, sprinting athlete, and we talk about top speed, top end speed, well, what does top end speed mean too? If we're talking about upright mechanics, upright max velocity cyclical mechanics, they're happening somewhere between probably 70 and 80% of your top speed. Guess what? Depending on the player, they're hitting 70 to 80% of their top speed by 10 yards if they're a big, <laughs> you know, heavy lineman. Right. And by 20, they're definitely hitting. So, oh, I don't need to train top speed. Well, top speed isn't your fastest speed at 60 meters. And stop reading the track study that said, you know, right. athletes accelerate out to 60. That guy was <laughs> at 12 yards. He was at upright mechanics. So, yeah, I'm going to train it. How much, when, dosage, that's... There's a lot more to that picture, but I think it's the silliest argument in the world to just go, oh, we don't need to do this at all. Yeah. Right. Like, and it came up, we put up an infographic from our education side a week or two ago. Look, you've seen the players that are really fast, but they're not game smart. And the argument a lot of people make is, look, if you're separating from the game, it has nothing to do with speed. It has to do with decision-making. It has to do with perception, action, coupling. 100% agree with that. Right. But I can have the smartest player in the world that understands the game and has all the smarts and tactics and spacing, and they know it. But if they're slow, it doesn't matter. They're still slow. Yep. So that's no good. On the other hand, I can have the brand new young player or that athlete, you know, we see this in the developmental years, who's incredibly fast, but they don't have the knowledge yet, right? And they are running around out on the field like a Tasmanian devil. They are covering <laughs> the court from here. And it's great because they're young and they can do it. But the reason they're doing it is because they're not using their head enough to read what's going on, to understand spaces and making good decisions. Yep. And it's interesting to me because this tends to be what I've seen a little bit as, you know, career age, younger players need to have the speed and the stamina to take advantage of the fact that they're probably not as knowledgeable yet. Yep. Even if they're great and they're geniuses, if they're still a rookie coming into the league at whatever sport, they don't have the knowledge the veterans do. We've all seen the veterans, right? You've been there, you've yeah. worked in, you know, the vets that just can't go as fast anymore. 
Yep. They can't cover the ground, but guess what? They're still being guys to the ball. It's the players that they always say that they're in the right place. They're in the right time. They got lucky. They're efficient. No, they're smart. Yeah. But if my job is on the performance side, right? Just throw out the sport for a second. Cause that's somebody else's job. We'll say, why wouldn't I want to make them as fast as they can be? Yep. I still want to keep that ability up there. So, you know, this is why guys retire. Cause even though they're smarter, they can't make it there on the first step or they get right. chased down from behind. So I, sometimes I laugh at this point in my career, you know, I get to be the old curmudgeon at this yeah. point. I've done yeah. it long enough. And uh, what's the argument about? I don't even understand what we're arguing. I know. Well, it's the internet, right? We need things to argue about, but you make a great point in the sense that I had a guy when I worked with the Indy 11, his name was Gerardo Torado. He was probably 35 or 36 when I worked with him. And this guy, I think is the second most capped Mexican international soccer player of all time. How we got him on the Indy 11, I have no idea, <laughs> right? Hey. Amazing human being. But it would you'd watch him play and you're like, well, yeah, he's fast, but he's not that fast, but he always made the play, right? Plays Be fast. He plays fast. He knows where to be. He's seen everything. He knows the runs he can make and the balls he can win. And it's like, when you think back, you're like, holy crap, like that was like greatness, right? And that was yeah. greatness at like 35, 36, you know? So yeah. you just imagine what he was like when he was younger, but that is the trade-off, right? As the athleticism wanes, that ability to yeah. pick it up with perception, with understanding of what's going on in front of you, like that mental side of the game. That's why they always say, hey, look, it's that bridge when you can maximize your athleticism and your perception is high and the game slows down. Man, yeah. the longer you can widen that window before the athleticism really starts to fall off, that's what's cool. really cool. Well, but this is also a danger point. And it's where, you know, part of the reason this topic's up right now is because we are advancing in what we can measure. Yeah. We're advancing and improving in what we can measure tech wise. And I love, I've always loved tech, the engineering side of me, the cutting edge, the problem solving. I love that. Mm -hmm. But these days, if you talk to me, you would think I'm some, again, old curmudgeon who hates technology and doesn't <laughs> want to do it. But I see it being abused so much. Yeah. And I've seen this one. So we were working with a national team soccer and the coach was very big on measuring some of these metrics on the field. And in all honesty, they were coming to a conclusion. I saw at the time that certain players were hard workers and weren't hard workers based primarily on heart rate and on distance covered. Yep. And it was like, oh, okay, where do I start with this? And we had come into this camp on a temporary basis to see if we we're going to keep consulting with the national team. So it's like, okay, I'm going to share it, but this might lose us this gig. But I thought they were entirely wrong. They weren't looking at the efficiency of the movement on the players. And so they were at this point and look, I get it. You got this data, you start trying to make decisions and take from it, but be careful just because somebody is running farther, faster, doesn't mean they're playing better. Yep. Again, go back to my it's rule, start by watching the sport the coaches know who's playing better. Then go look at the data and try to figure out what it tells you. Don't go the other way around. It's a dangerous problem. Absolutely. I hope I'm not misspeaking here, but I promise I read something about where they did this with like Messi and they looked at Messi and he was like, he covered one of the least amount of miles or kilometers or whatever in a game. So you can watch a game and say Lionel Messi is one of the worst players out there if you're using that metric, right? Like it's <laughs> right. it's mind-blowing. Like, no, the guy knows when to make runs. He knows where to be. Like sometimes running less is just you're more economical and more efficient in your movements, right? Entirely, entirely. So, you know, you got to start at the sport, start with the coaches who know, and then look backwards. And so, I mean, I think this applies to all these things we're talking about, right? In yep. terms of game speed versus the physical capacities. Look, if I'm a track coach, 
it's going to be pretty much the physical capabilities and their skill of doing it. Yep. They don't have the same number of things to react to. I mean, obviously there's internal and external things in a hundred meter sprint still, but right. much different than a team sport. But look, once you get beyond that narrow environment, yeah, you gotta, you just gotta understand it's the sport and work together. Again, come back to language and teams working together, yep. sit down with sport coaches and talk with them. Yep. Like that's like, where do you start all this? Number one, if you're going to start working with a new team, you talk to the coach, you get in the head of the coach. Our job as everybody else on the integrated support team is to go down that pathway and try to understand what the coach sees, what they're thinking, what their words mean. They're the coach. They're steering the ship. So we got to try to figure that out. That's our job. Yeah, I love it, man. So the other day you put up this awesome infographic about the need for both training pure speed, like we've kind of alluded to the physical side and incorporating game-like activities into practices to maximize speed development. So I'd love to hear you talk about, we've kind of already talked about the physical side a little bit, but you can speak to that. But I'd love to hear about the role of the game-like activities and why you kind of need both to have a well-rounded program. You do, and I think it depends on your setting. So if you are with a team in a certain sport, you have a great opportunity. Like I said, learn what that coach thinks. So your speed training becomes really specific. It might not be speed training at all. It might be a really short dose in a warm-up, right? You're kind of microdosing and constantly getting these little hits because you don't have time, but you're training pieces of speed, warm-ups, short hits, and then you're hopefully in a great setting working with the coaches to make sure there's drills that are using and applying that from a constraints approach. And that's a perfect time. If you're in that true one sport, really good integrated and really trusting setting, man, speed training becomes such a big part of everything. So it's applied. In our private settings, we don't get to do it that way. So I love the constraints approach to motor control. Man, when I found a book by Bernstein in the library when I was doing (laughs) my master's work in biomechanics, it was like, there's another way to look at motor control. Let's not go there today because that'd be a big one. (laughs) But okay, so I still got to take those pieces though, right? I have to apply it. And we got, we're finally starting to see more conversations in the last three to five years about motor control. And for me, it was funny because when I was in grad school studying biomechanics and motor control, I was already working in pro hockey. I was with the minor league team. I was doing stuff with the LA Kings. I was on staff there. I'm working with pro athletes and other sports. And there was such a separation between what I was being taught in motor control and what I was seeing working in the real world. Mm. And that influenced me in a big way. So when we're working with our athletes off season, multiple sports in a private setting, and we're trying to build speed, we got to bridge that gap from the pure capability into things that involve perception, reading the environment, different environments, different tasks, different internal stimulus. We got to deal with that. And so it's a big part of what we do now. It is. It has to be part of every training session. I have to create opportunities to have something to read and react to. And I have to set up the training session as well to interfere with the learning process so that they have to retrieve it, right? I don't just want to work on one thing continually. I want to work on it, apply it, work on it, apply it, go between teach and train. So there's a lot of motor control side there. And I think that's what I've seen make the biggest difference in the results we're getting with athletes and really how athletes and coaches report they are feeling 
when they play. Yeah. And we don't have raw data for a lot of this stuff. Let's be honest. I mean, we're still figuring out how to measure some of this in sport. Right. And on the private or younger side, it's not there. But when we did a better job of building in these drills that let them apply what they're working on with a reaction, with chase, with best game ever, you just wanted to do speed, just played variations of tag. Yeah. Yep. You want to do it in a naturally ecologically rich environment, tags it. But chase games, race games, a big one we've been talking about lately, Mike, too, with our coaches is we had got away from doing enough curved runs. We kind of did an audit of our programs and we, somehow we had pulled away and we dropped out a lot of our curved and circle and figure eight running. And man, sport's not in all straight lines. So again, just another way to look at how do you apply it? I'm huge on that. And there's got to be reaction to something. Yeah, no, I love that. Like you said, not just perception, but I think the, adding the elements of competition too. I think that's oh. one thing I learned the hard way personally was, hey man, you can do all the right speed stuff and you're giving them the physical tools, but man, it's amazing. Like even your high level athletes, you put them, you know, like they, they're kind of going through the motions you put them in a competitive environment and like that switch yep. flips. And all of a it sudden is. you're getting the intent and you're getting the speed that you're chasing that whole time, right? Well, the intent, you said it though, intent is such a big thing. The most motivated athlete in the world can have an intent on a drill, but when there's something else external, especially if we're talking about a team sport athlete, yep. there's just a difference. Yep. I mean, individual sport athletes learn how to do this internally. If they're going to reach a high level, they have to. Yep. Team sports are about external stuff. So you <laughs> got to do that. And I'll say, be careful with this because- as much as I love that, I also had some of the scariest games of my life when I misapplied this with elite athletes. <laughs> the scariest game of duck, duck, goose ever with some pro athletes. And uh, <laughs> we were at risk of really getting somebody hurt there at a point. You get some NFL guys playing duck, duck, goose and going around that circle. And oh, yeah, it got ugly. So be careful with that intent. But but it was a great moment of going, oh, yeah. What does this do to what's happening? Right. So, yes. But then also at the same time, sheer terror, like, please don't let anybody get injured. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I had some all, all pros out there. There was that moment of, okay, we're ending this game now. We're moving on to the next drill yep. and boom, get out of it quick. Yes. I love it, man. So the next thing I'd love to talk about, and it's shifting emphasis slightly, is the role of strength training in speed development. And I know this is something, mm. again, you kind of talked about, something that you're passionate about. But what are your thoughts here and how big of a role should strength training in the weight room play in building faster athletes? It's got a huge role. I'm going to start simple. I think it's a key piece. And here's the thing. For me today, there's not a difference in all honesty of speed and strength training. They are two different parts of the same coin. Mm, Both I of like them that. can train physical capabilities. Both of them can train skill. It's all a matter of how I use them. But I said it earlier, sprinting is an amazing plyo. Now, yeah. I got to be smart when I apply this to an athlete that's not used to it. But holy crap, come on. That's a great strength exercise. Here's my bottom line. I say this all the time now. Strength is a lot more than just weight on the barbell. Mm. It took me yeah. a lot of work to say that. Hi, my name's Ken and I'm a recovering strength coach. Ugh, I had the hammer of strength and power. And that's what I did with everybody. And I had an athlete that hit a point where making them more powerful wasn't making them faster. And this was the guy's key for the NFL. He was coming up and down off practice teams, right? And he kept getting the same feedback. He had to be faster here. Part of why I went back and became a speed coach. But I also had to realize that more power wasn't going to do it for this athlete anymore. Yeah. So I had to change to the skill side. So, but is strength part of it? You know, you get the people and just had this a couple of weeks ago with a coach saying, oh, he doesn't need any strength training. He just needs speed training. You're thinking wrong. You're making this an or, an either or situation. It's an and, and it's always an and. You know, everybody talks about Usain Bolt wasn't a great lifter and he didn't lift lots of weight. No, that's okay. 
but it wasn't an either or. It's not that he never did anything. He did it on the track, first of all, but there was also bounding and plyometrics. Well, those are strength drills. Strength has a lot of different qualities. And we simplified it for our system that we talk about six different types of strength and they range from eccentric through force through things now are impulse and speed are power and reactive strength. You got to break these things down. So where's the balance? But it's never a or. There's yeah. always some element of both. And the younger the athlete, the more developmental. I want to build a broad base. Building a broad base of different types of strength is going to set them up for better speed, for more application in different sports, and for better resiliency with it later on. I love that. I love that. And I just think back, like you said, what did you say you were? Very strong centrist. I'm there with I, you. Like, I like to be a radical centrist. A radical centrist. I love that because... You know, our industry has these massive swings in the pendulum, right? And now I feel yeah. like we're in this phase where, and maybe I beat this drum a little bit where, yeah, okay, I was a power lifter. So I took things too far, but now I'm seeing it go the other way where, like you said, <laughs> oh, they just need speed, more speed. Well, but how come for all those years that I power lifted and I trained people probably more like power lifters than I should have, I still saw young kids get faster, get stronger, improve their vertical jumps, right? Yeah. Like it's a tool in the toolbox. It just can't be the only tool in the toolbox. There you box. go. There you go. So, and, and you got to know what tools to use. One, right? When that Ferrari comes in, if all I got's a hammer, I'm in trouble. But again, <laughs> if all I have is this, you know, little digital thing too, that might not do everything I need. You got to have enough tools, and you got to know how to use them. And yep. just start thinking about these things as all parts of the same continuum. Then we can do a lot better. Yeah, I love it, man. Okay, one last one here. Talk to me about the role of time under tension and tempo training in the weight room, because many would say, again, the the non-radical centrists, the people that love the ends of the spectrum would say there's no role for slower speed activities, but I disagree. And I think you would as well. So I'd love to hear kind of how you manipulate or use time under tension in your programs. Yeah, I do think there's a role for it. Now, I have definitely like, you know, similar to you're saying, look, I was... Olympic lifting coach. I really found that useful for me when I was an athlete and I coached it. And it's a great tool for me to use with a lot of athletes. And I've probably overused it just like you said, and slow strength. I do think it is possible to tip the scales too far. Mm -hmm, so yeah, sure. it's not that you're too strong. It's that you're spending too much time on strength training, which is taking away from other things, or you are altering some things. It's, but again, it's not too strong. Wrong way to look at it. You're starting to change over qualities you don't need to. Yes. Okay, fine. But that's an extreme. And the reality is we don't see most athletes getting there. Right. You get those guys that have been lifting for years or love it, and maybe they are there. But let's go to the opposite side of the spectrum. So we look at, you know, and I was fortunate to take this work out of stuff from Bosco and talking to Alvar Meal and different really smart people, much brighter than me. And we've looked at athletes as either being more force dominant or speed dominant. Okay, we've all seen the real life examples of that. Yep. If you've been in the trenches, you've lived it. So let's take a speed guy who's not that strong in the weight room. He probably hates back squatting or lifting heavy. He wants to do plyos all day long. <laughs> Guess what? Those are guys that benefit massively from adding some strength. Now, yep. do I want to make him into a 500 pound back squatter and lift three days a week? Oh, hell no. no. But adding a little bit of that stimulus for him, increasing his force generation capacity, it works great. And that's going to happen with some load, with some time under tension. We're finally getting to a point that people are talking about again, you know, we're learning more about tendons. The research is catching up. Yep. You get great work by guys like Keith Barr and thinking about these things in rehab and in training. But if I want to take care of tendons, one of the things, some of the tools I might go to go eccentric and isometric. Right. Huh. There's some time under tension there. And isometrics, the definition of slow or the anti, I mean, you're not moving. <laughs> right. 
it can work wonderfully well for these guys. I think the key that I've had to take in over the years is about the dosage I use of it. The exact opposite thing that the guy's probably wired for or likes is probably one of the most beneficial, but I have to do it in really small amounts and I have to space it out the right amount. If they're not ready for that and not good at that, boy, I can't overload it too quick, but it's also going to be incredibly beneficial. I look at this from a rehab side, Mike. I mean, usually the exact thing that's causing you a problem is exactly what we have to do, but we have to get back there slowly and smartly. But if there's a certain type of stress that causes you a problem, we got to get good at that stress. Unless we can take it away. If it's part of your sport, we got to get used to it. So yeah, I think it's huge. And it's again, what do you mean you can't use it? It's not an or. I'm a big and guy. Yes. Most things in life, most things in performance, most things in teams are about and. So figure out how much of those ands to use. I love it. All right, my guy, big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Kinvik one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, man, I always struggle with this one because I'm a big believer in where I'm at by being what I did, including the stupid stuff. But with that said... (laughs) I tell my kids stuff and I tell their people stuff so they can learn. So what would I do different? Value the relationships more. It's that simple. Appreciate them more, value them more, spend more time at them. They are more valuable than you realized. And when you look back later, you're going to go, man, I should have just done a little bit more of that and connected. So value it more. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty sure you would agree with me. I think we have similar thought processes, but just... Man, we learn as much from our athletes, if not more, than vice versa, right? You can't learn with all your athletes. You have to have them to learn. So that's, yes, they are the key for it. Yeah, I love it. All right. Last but not least, we got our lightning round. So five fairly short questions. Your answers can be as long or short as you like. All right, here we go. Number one, what's your career highlights so far as a coach? Oh, career highlights. I can't break it down to one. I got a couple that I I think reflect what's important for me. First, the first time I had an athlete, pro athlete, been told his career was over, foot surgery, wasn't going to make it back. Young guy, young family. It took us a year and a half and we got him back. And then he kept having a 10 year career in his sport. But when he was coming back and he played his first game and he broke down and cried and said, thanks for the help, for believing in him and what it meant to his family. Dude, that was like a wake up. You have a role. You are a coach. This is a big deal. So that was one similar then is athletes that I've had that have gone into the field and have found this to be something they want to do. So them and coaches, the coaches who have come back and said, man, you made an impact in how I do this, not just as a coach, but a person. Those are the moments you think about. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Okay. Number two, I'm really intrigued by this one, but in your bio, it says you sound recorded for bands U2 and Smashing Pumpkins. What does that mean? Yeah, no. So my undergrad was in sound engineering and acoustic design, totally different lifetime. And while going through college, going through the degree, I was working in a studio. I was in a recording studio. I used to spend lots of hours, started as an intern, got a job while I was in school. I was also doing live sound and concerts and bands. And I got to be the second assistant engineer on U2. They were in Chicago doing it and they're recording stuff for a live album. And I got to record. So that was awesome. And then Smashing Pumpkins, I got to do at a street festival in Chicago. And it was years ago. And yeah, yeah, some really cool times. It was a fun world. Shocking how much I've forgotten from that world. Right. But it was a place of both art and science. I mean, I think it's one of those things that start for me there. There's the electrical engineering and managing all the science of sound and, and frequencies. And then there's just the art of it being an art and putting it together. So yeah, Definitely some different and fun days. Dude, that is awesome, man. Okay, number three. As an avid griller and smoker myself, (laughs) I know this is one of your hobbies. What's your favorite thing to cook, man? Anything pretty much over fire. 
Okay. Um, I am very much, you know, into cooking over live fire. Yeah. Want to go to Argentina and check out some real life. You know, let me see Francis Melman and go to one of these dinners where everything's cooked that way all day or over fire. So what am I liking right now? I've been doing a bunch of Wagyu beef ribs oh. that are just over the fire, kind of slow, low, but with a good char. That's awesome. Yeah. And then vegetables and lettuce. Yeah. Dude, okay. Dude, lettuce, grilled lettuce is good, but it is. I swear people are going to hear this and think I'm not. I've never tried that. It's actually quite tasty. Yes. All right. A little lemon, a little salt, the right amount of char. It's awesome. All right, man. I'm going to have to give that a shot. Okay. <laughs> Number four. It feels like you've worked around the globe and maybe you might have at this point, but what was the most unique or maybe your favorite place to work? Let's see. Unique. Been limited. I've been in, in Europe, done stuff there, done stuff in Asia quite a bit. In Asia, more than anywhere else in the North America. South yeah. America, I haven't got to work in there. Asia the most. We spent a lot of time as a company and myself doing things in China starting back in 2012. So there are some really interesting places. Here's what I guess I would say. The places that are most interesting is where I can wake up and be in a place that's a little bit uncomfortable because things are different. The rhythm of different, people move different. The food might be a little odd looking or scary. There's yeah. a different lane. I like that feeling of a little bit uncomfortable and just going out and exploring. So if I can find a place that's got an interesting culture and I can get out and check it out. I love that. My favorite. Oh, okay. So here's a different favorite. My favorite's coming home. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> my, my favorite's coming home. I love being here at home. This is my family. And I love the moment when I come from international travel and you go through customs and they say, welcome home, Mr. Vic. It's one of my favorite things. Yes. I get so disappointed if the customs agent doesn't say that or now with everything being digital, you don't get that. So right. I love that. I love it, man. I love it. Okay, last but not least, number five, what's next for Ken Vic? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? <sighs> yeah, it's been an, you know, obviously it's been an interesting year. Uh, yes. 20 and still going on. Our youngest child just went off to college. Oh my gosh. Uh, wow. This year. So that's in 2020, exciting. graduated. So it's me and my wife here now. So it's a different stage. So that's kind of one of those things that brings up those questions. What are we doing next? Right. Pandemic hits, decimates our international business. Oh yeah. Uh, it's been interesting. A lot of broken contracts. Like a lot of people, you know, yeah. never seen a force majeure clause employed before, uh, but now it's been happening right. all over. Right. Our domestic business, you know, which we were rebooting and taking a much different direction going to 20 was totally put on hold lost a lot of places. Yeah. We had some other places that actually grew during the pandemic. Yeah. But so what's next? Sharing is number one. And sharing, I mean, a couple of things. This is kind of the theme. One, committed to writing a book, committed to writing just articles and thoughts more on Medium. I went onto social media, which I have avoided almost like a plague <laughs> in a lot of ways. Maybe I think it is a plague at times, but there's parts I like. So I've been committed to doing that. I've been committed to sharing more. And there's people on my own staff who got on our case. It's like, dude, you know a lot of stuff. Why aren't you talking about it? And I've been a bad person for taking that for granted, but I need to share. So we're doing that as a company. We're also then one of the pivots is expanded education. And you get this, look, we've been doing this for 20 plus years. Yeah, We've learned a lot of stuff. There's a great business there, and it's just a cool thing to do to be able to share it. So sharing is the big thing, a lot of pivots that way. And as a company in Velocity, I'll keep consulting. We'll keep doing some international high-performance work consulting, but really helping organizations and, and now even other businesses do a better job at what they're doing. That's awesome, man. Well, when that book comes out, I'll be the first one to buy it. I can't wait to read that. That'll be great. Working on that. I love it. Uh, my, my biggest problem is I'm working on two of them at the same time and I'm, I'm getting yelled <laughs> at horribly. I know I'm not supposed to do this, so I'm trying to narrow it down. Oh, that's hard, man. 
It's like you haven't got one yet, but now you've got two ideas. I can. But I got two imagine. different things that keep coming up in. Well, it's just what comes up in life and every day, and so yeah. those are the things you get in conversations and start writing about. So, anyway, I love it. I love it. Well, Ken, it's been awesome to catch up today. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? Like I said. Twitter is the place I've been sharing more. I find that one a little bit better for sharing professionally and among coaches. Yep. But Twitter, LinkedIn, Medium are all Coach Ken Vick. Medium, I'm writing. LinkedIn, professional networking. But those are there. And then corporate-wide, our Velocity Education channel on Twitter, VSP Education, or on Instagram. Great places also to find. We really have that side of it, sharing what we kept internally for so long. Now we're starting to share, and that part's been fun. I love it, man. Well, again, Ken, this was great, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Happy I could do it. Thanks. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Ken. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. Man, what can I say? He's a very sharp dude, doing things at a very high level, working with high-level athletes. But most importantly, I think the things that I enjoyed the most were how philosophically and maybe methodologically if that's a word, congruent we are. I think we share a lot of the same philosophies. So it's always nice to catch up and just talk shop with somebody like Ken. So if you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor. If you're not already a subscriber, subscribe to the episode ASAP. Doesn't matter where you consume podcasts. I know iTunes has been a bit sketch here lately, but you can go with iTunes. We also got Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon. Basically, wherever you prefer to consume podcasts, Go there right now and subscribe so that you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.